0: good morning, everyone. It is Mother's Day, and so we are going to take a little bit of a break, obviously, from our First John series. Uh, for whatever reason, some kind of special day I hear. People want me to preach on some other topic. I don't know. Let's, um, let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for the gift of our mothers, Lord. We thank you so much. Um, apparently, we all have them, and so, Lord, we are all thankful for them. Um, Lord, Lord, I, I thank you for their sacrifice for us, for their love for us, Lord. Um, we all come from mothers, and we all love our mothers. Uh, mothers are not always perfect, um, but they do give birth to us. And um, some of us have had adoptive mothers. Some of us have had blood mothers. Um, Lord, some of us have mothers that are still alive. Some of us have mothers that are long since gone, um, Lord. Lord. But we do thank you for that gift, for without them, we would not be here. But Lord, we also thank you for the gift of those who came before our mothers that we do not often think about, but that your scripture points out as well. Our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers, our great-great-grandmothers, and so on and so forth, back all the way to the greatest of all, our grandmother Eve. And Father, we thank you so much for that and the long lineage Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us this morning and that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're glad to have all of you with us this morning. And for those moms who are home watching us uh, eating breakfast in bed, I hope that it's good. And if it's not, I hope that you are pretending it's good. my wife, and uh, they're going to be at the next service, but uh, we've got my grandbaby with us this weekend, and um, my wife was recounting all the meals that my children made, because I would let them make the meals for her, and um, uh, the varying qualities that those meals would be when they did breakfast in bed, and then I would, of course, laugh as I watched her eat them. So, Mother's Day was great for me also. All right, John John, nineteen, twenty-six, and 27 is an interesting passage. It's an interesting gospel, and that's what we studied this morning. Uh, we did get a clicker. Hopefully, that bird is going to go away. We're going to crank that sucker up. But um, John nineteen twenty six and twenty seven says this: When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, "Woman, behold your son." Then he said to the disciple, "Behold your mother." And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, this might seem like an odd passage to read because we just read it on Good Friday. So what in the world is a Good Friday passage do or doing being read on Mother's Day? And why would this passage at all be mentioned during Easter? I mean, Easter is supposed to be a time of celebration, not a time remembering the cross. We remember the victory that Jesus gained, right? And so we're remembering, of course, the big three events in redemptive history. Remember the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then, of course, we haven't come to the conclusion or to the the application of that salvation, uh, Pentecost. But I think that this passage really sheds light on our Matthew text this morning. And it's not to be missed that this is Good Friday, the day that Jesus is dying for our sins when he utters these words. And not just the sins of those who are standing at the cross. Jesus is dying for the sins of everyone who has lived up until that point. All of the saints and all of the people who had sinned from Adam up until that point who had placed their faith in God. And so they're in Sheol or the holding place or wherever they are. They had placed their faith and Jesus is looking at them. He has died for their sins. That's what we think he descended to hell is not really hell, but he descended to the holding place to release them. But he's also dying for the sins of those who are there, and he's looking ahead, and he's dying for the sins of everybody who will come up until the second coming. So that's a pretty significant thing that's happening right there. But that's not all that has just happened. Jesus is dying a pretty torturous death if you're thinking about it, if you know the story about what happened. Now, this day is a very big day, along with the six days of creation. That was obviously a big day in our history, right? Uh, However long those days took. The final consummation, when the second coming will happen. The arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. Resurrection Sunday, uh, Pentecost. Along with all of those days, this is one of the biggest days in redemptive history. All of it. But unlike all those other days, this day involves the suffering of God in a way that none of those other days did. Now, I would say that the fall of man or humanity did involve the suffering of God, but this day involves the suffering of God in a way that no other day does. And when we read about that day, we understood it. We focused on that during Good Friday. He's dying on the cross after being beaten by the Romans and his Jewish accusers. He's been flogged with a cat of nine tails, which is a truly nasty whip. It's got nine tails. It's got spikes at the end. Uh, A good cat of nine tails could easily kill you with that whip. I won't describe the gruesome details, but it was gruesome what they could do with that whip. He had a crown of thorns driven into his brow with thorns that were anywhere from two to three inches pushed into his skull. He was Forced to carry his own cross, he had been beaten by his uh, Jewish uh, leaders, he had been beaten by the Roman soldiers. He was so tired when he was carrying the cross that he couldn't do it because of the blood loss and the beatings and the open wounds on his back. Someone else has to do it for him. When they put him on the cross, they don't just tie him like they usually did. They actually put nails into his hands, into his feet. And when they drop him in the cross, his shoulders get dislocated, right? His ankles are probably dislocated. And he's having to push himself up to take every torturous breath on that back, which was ripped open. All of these things are happening to him. And if you don't know anything about crucifixion, Every time you come down, you suffocate. Every time you go up, you take a breath, and your lungs begin to fill with fluid, and you basically drown in your own bodily fluids. Now, this is important. Why? You need to understand all of this. And on top of this, he sacrificed, he separated from the Father, God. He says, my Father, right? he, he, He cries out to God in this separation moment. All of these things are happening, and while this is happening, as if that's not enough, he's being mocked by the Jewish leadership, he's being mocked by some of the soldiers, and all of his friends have deserted him. This is what's happening to him on the cross. It is a brutal moment. And I would submit to you that the Son of God who is both human, fully human at that time, and suffering as one of us, but also the God of the universe, he is suffering and has a lot of things on his mind. A lot of things. Like the kind of things that nobody in all of creation has ever had on their mind. Ever. Or ever will. And in the midst of all of that, all of that, what does he do? In the midst of all of that pain and all of that torture, one of his last actions is to look down at his mom and to say this, woman, behold your son, and to the disciple he loved, John, behold your mother. One of his last acts from the cross is to take care of his mother. That is astonishing. We don't often think of that moment because we're thinking about Good Friday and all the other things that happen. But how does the son of God even concerned about that? Mary also was a sinner. She also struggled. He also was dying for her, but he looks down from the cross and he says, "Woman, behold your son," and he hands her off to John to take care of her. Why not his brothers? Well, we know his brothers had also deserted him. Some of them will come back to the faith. But we know that Jesus is the Son of God, and he knows what is best for his mom. He also knows what happens to, the God, to John, and John will be with her. John also is going to be the only disciple that isn't martyred. He's going to live a long life, so he is the one who will be able to take care of her. This is a profound moment, and it's a profound teaching moment for all of us on how we are to take care of our parents in our lives old age, in our adult age. Excuse me. So in this, he's a living example of what he preaches about in Matthew 15, 4-6. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. He's arguing with the Pharisees here, the Sadducees, the the rulers. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. This is what the commandment says. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, or Corban, that's the, the word here, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So, so what happened with the Sanhedrin, they had the Mishnah, they have all these other uh, books that they've added to the law that are trying to explain the law. So like I read commentaries and stuff like that when I'm doing sermons, they, the Jews have commentaries as well on the law. And this these commentaries and this oral law form like this hedge around the law. And what they kind of started to believe is, look, if everybody in the world can obey the law for a little bit, then uh, God will come back. They developed all these kinds of teachings around the law and they all these explanations of the law. And there's reasons other, other besides that, there other reasons why we have these explanations around the law. And some of them are pretty good. Some of them are pretty bad. But they have these explanations. And one of the things, and this is what Jesus is talking about, is if you could... Um, is is if a person made a vow, they have all these things about honoring your vows, right? We're supposed to be people of our word. And one of the things that they said is if you pledged a thing to God, then that thing should be pledged to God, right? So if you say, hey, I'm giving this to the Lord, that thing should be given to the Lord. Uh, One of the things, though, that people began to do is say, well, rather than take care of my parents, I'm going to pledge this thing to the Lord, right? And then I won't have to take care of, of my parents. I can just kind of pledge it to them. Now, the first commandment that Jesus gives is honor your father and your mother. Now, everybody in his society would understand that commandment. Now, most children and teens follow this command. Even in our culture, we, we kind of have got that, right? We grew up in a Christian culture, so even in our culture, even though we're losing that, most children, at least to some degree, understand we still have the vestiges of that. So in the South, we still have a large percentage of Christians. If you go to other parts of the U.S., it's, there's not, right? It's just a very low percentage. Uh, but even there, you have the vestiges of we should respect and we should honor our parents. Now, we're losing some of that for a large variety of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons—now, uh, every if you go back through history, there, are always been, there have always been cultures where respecting parents have, have kind of gotten out of fashion— but by and large, since the foundation of the world. Most cultures have strong traditions of respecting your elders and respecting your parents. We happen to live in a culture that's kind of losing that, right? We, we seem to be losing those traditions. And, and we're kind of losing that as we become more globalist. There's all kinds of reasons why we're losing that, but we are losing that to some degree. But in ancient Israel, they would have this commandment drilled in their brains from the time they were small children all the way up. They understood that they should respect and honor their parents. They also understood that they respected and honored the elderly. This was something that was drilled in their heads from small children. What was not drilled into people was how to get the command, or how to get around the command to honor one's father and mother. That's when it took some doing. But with, as with any rule, there is typically some kind of loophole. If you can think of a law, there's a loophole. If you can think of a rule, there's a loophole, right? Now, why do we make loopholes around laws and rules? Does anybody know? To get out of them. But what's the good reason? Does anybody know a good reason why we have laws or loopholes around some? The Spirit's more important than the letter. The spirit is more important than the letter. Yeah. I mean, loopholes are typically there for tough cases. This governor of Pennsylvania used to say that um, um, tough cases make bad law, right? Uh, And so we would have these loopholes. We'd have laws that were made for a large group of people But every once in a while, you come upon a case that's really kind of tough, like this large law can't really be applied to every single situation. So loopholes are typically applied to laws out of mercy and for logical reasons. This doesn't apply in this particular situation. But whenever there are loopholes for reasons of mercy, there's always another group of people who will look to exploit the same loopholes for reasons which have nothing whatsoever to do with mercy they not want to exploit them for selfish reasons, or those reasons may be for revenge or personal gain or exploitation or even enjoyment. Some people just enjoy getting around the rules. Whatever rule you set, they want to get around them. If you don't believe me, look at any two-year-old. In the case of honoring one's parents, the law applied to, um, to taking, taking care of parents on into their old age and there were certain loopholes. But this loophole was not intended to get out of taking care of one's parents. People were just kind of looking to get around that. The leaders in Israel were allowing the loophole that said, if people swore the oath to where they pledged their property to God, that property then was vowed to God, and that vow was more sacred than the commandment to honor your father and mother. But the commands on the vows in Scripture are lesser than the the command to honor your mother and your father. The command to honor your father is a title head, right? It's a Ten Commandment. It's one of the major ones. All these other commands are explaining the title heads, right? They're explaining the Ten Commandments. And so that Ten Commandment is something that stands because it's a massive law. It's a massive principle in our culture that not only applies to parents, it also applies to all kinds of authorities, but it does apply here as well. And what's more, this command was rooted in the deeper principle of both love and mercy and honoring one's obligations. So this kind of also has the principle of a vow in it. By the very nature that you're a child, you have these pledges or these promises or this vow there. It's implied. You're supposed to do it, but it's an act of love and it's an act of mercy. And so they were saying you can get around this act of love and this mercy and this vow by making some other kind of vow to try to get out of the original vow. So they were allowing adult children to rashly or intentionally get around the obligation of caring for their parents by pledging those funds or properties and just saying, it's Corbin, and you don't now have to take care of him. Well, in the New Testament, we also read about what we're really called to do. So in the Old Testament, you were supposed to take care of them, and Jesus is saying, hey, this is ridiculous. We read then what we're supposed to do in the New Testament law. This is how we, as adults, are supposed to take care of our parents. 1 Timothy 5.4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show their godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. 1 Timothy 5, 7 to 8. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is a passage that is not often studied because it's a passage that is one of those that is like, oh, oh, that hurts, right? It's a little uncomfortable. There's all kinds of passages in Scripture that are uncomfortable. We like to focus on ones that are comfortable to us, right, that make us healthy and wealthy and wise, but not these ones that are a little bit challenging. And I would submit to you that this one is most challenging us to us in this culture. So what Timothy's talking about, not Timothy, Paul is teaching Timothy, but what he's talking about is putting widows on the role of widows. So there was kind of an office that was similar to uh, an elder in a church, but it was like this widow, and the widow would have a responsibility in the church, and she would be able to, she would take care of people and stuff like that, but also the church would take care of widows. Because back then, if you were an orphan or you were a widow, you had no family, and if you had no family to take care of you, you were in deep trouble. And so the church was expected to take care of them. So a lot of people wanted to put widows on the list. But they had families. And Paul is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. That is ridiculous. The families have an obligation to take care of their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their moms. Right? So that's their grandma's. And their great grandmas. And you may say, wait a minute, wait a minute, a minute. Maybe my mom, but my not grandma, not my great grandma. What in the world? She didn't raise me. Yes, she did. What? Well, the Bible has this concept called federal headship. Just as in Adam all were saved, so in Christ, I mean, so in Adam all fell, so in Christ all are saved. We are all descended from Adam, and when he fell, we all fell. And in Christ, we're all saved, meaning Adam is the first father and Eve is the first mother. And so if they were here, they would still be over the clan, right? They're still our firsts. And so we would still have to care for them and honor them, and it goes down the chain. If your great, great, great grandparents are here, you still have to care for them because you are descended from them and they did care for you because how do you think you got here? Right? And that's what the Bible is saying. And that's what Paul's saying. Now, this is obvious in many cultures, right? If you're in Eastern cultures, this is obvious. If you were in most European cultures up until recently, this was also obvious. Now, in the American culture, it's been lost. Why? Because we're a blend. We are all mutts, right? We all think there's no purebreds in America. Now, in much of American culture, this was still thought of as the way to go. But in the last, I don't know, 50 years or so, we've forgotten our way. But we're all mutts. This is why we've lost our way. So Paul teaches that it's not right for the church to have to do so if they have a family and the family should do it first. Now this is hard for us. Why? We don't like it because in our culture, we much prefer missions or uh, if you're a Christian maybe or exciting careers. If you're, if you're out in the world, you want to do something that's more exciting with your life than staying back and taking care of kids. Uh, that was really not very popular in my my parents' generation. Uh, so a lot of moms went back to work because taking care of kids was really looked down upon, especially in Fairfax County. I was in the D.C. area. And so parents who stayed home with their kids had really looked down upon. And so um, they were all out expressing themselves and living themselves, and we were called latchkey kids. And so what happened was as a young son, I had to raise my brother. And so you talk to Gen Xers, we don't tend to have that much of a of the same value, we don't like value that quite as much because we all raised our younger brothers and sisters, right? And so you kind of talk to that. If you if you grew up as a latchkey kid, you understand what I'm uh, talking about. However, uh, so taking care of family was not looked upon; it was not prized as much as working. Whether the dad stayed home or the mom stayed home it didn't really matter, but but we didn't want to do that. It's not as exciting, and certainly now taking care of parents when they get older, is also not as exciting. We don't want to do that either. We want to be out doing other things. But this is what Paul says, no. If you don't do these things, you are worse than an unbeliever. And he's not saying that unbelievers are bad people, but he's saying as a Christian, you now have Christ in you. You're basically rejecting your faith. And you have now become worse than the unbeliever you are called to take care of those in your family, whether they're your children or or the relative who's injured, whatever it is in your family, you are called to first take care of those so that others don't have to take care of them, but also on this principle. Here's the principle. They are eternal beings. Your job is not eternal. No matter how exciting your job is, when you retire, five years later, they probably won't remember you. A decade later, they definitely won't remember you. A generation later, your picture won't even be on the wall. But here's the thing. A million years from now, that believer will be with you in heaven. And so the scriptural principle is what is more important. That's what's more important. And that's what Paul is driving home people are more important we don't understand that all the time and a lot of people do i'm not saying everybody doesn't but our culture sometimes doesn't get that we want to push people aside but the scriptures are teaching us something differently because in god's economy you are more valuable than money or jobs everyone here is much more valuable no matter what your age elderly are not useless the young are not useless in our culture, they are. And that's why we're talking about stuff like abortion, we want to get rid of them. Or like even now, we got my governor in Virginia, my old governor in Virginia. He's like, hey, even after the womb, we could kill them. And then now adults, we want to kind of, when they're older, we want to get rid of them as well too. And this stuff kind of comes up in Europe and here. Why? Because we don't want to be burdened. But in Scripture, this is the worst thing. Of the worst, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay, so eternal beings. Now, are there caveats? Like, we're called to take care of our parents in their old age, and this is a good thing. But we're also called to take care of our grandparents if our parents can't, or to pitch in. It's a team event, it's not just one person. And our great-grandparents, it's not just one person. We don't just kind of push them off to the side. Now, people ask me, are there caveats to this? Are there loopholes? And the answer is yes. There are times when this principle doesn't apply. But don't look for the loopholes. There are times when parents are so um, uh, wicked or nasty that they have broken and severed that relationship. Right. So I have run into parents that are so cruel or so um, difficult to deal with that the relationship is severed at an early age or or somewhere along the line. It's just you can't deal with them. Now, now hear me. This does not apply to a parent who gets Alzheimer's later or dementia later or whatever later in their life and becomes difficult to deal with. You just got to deal with them. That's just part of aging. But what I'm talking about is earlier on. There are times when this kind of thing happens and you have to break for the health of your family and just for you, right? They're abusive parents and you just got to cut them off. You all know what I'm talking about. Those are the caveats. Those are the exceptions. But we're not to look for ways out. We're called to look for ways in and only in extreme cases are we allowed out. We'll finish with that. Some parents force us out, but love and mercy, even for difficult people, is the norm in Scripture. And we, as the people of the light, are called to live lives for others, not lives of self-indulgence, which is really tough in a culture that pretty much majors in self-indulgence. It's hard to remember that others are who we live for, not us. And it's hard to think about that in a city filled with sweet cars and amazing jobs and powerful people and McMansions on every corner. And believe me, if you've been to third world countries and work where children are living in trash dumps. Everyone here is living well off. And we forget that. If you've been to Lincoln Village to help us, you're understanding. But even there, they're a little better off than many people in the rest of the world. It's hard to remember that others are who we live for. But at the end of the day, we're not called to look to any of that for our example. Rather, we need to remember that when it comes to our family, And when it comes to our parents, our example is the King of Kings upon the cross, who in his weakest moment of all, as he was giving up everything for us in his moment of extreme torture and suffering, in a moment of extreme importance for the entire creation, for all of the world, for our salvation, for the history of all humanity forward forward, present, and future, at that very moment when he was separated from God, the Father said, hold it! Mom, your son. Son, your mother. Happy Mother's Day.